Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I can hardly believe it. I say this every year, but it's true. The holidays are almost upon us. Uh, And for those who are listening, seniors, make sure you you can enjoy your holidays by getting your work done now. You are not going to want to be writing essays over your holiday break. Your parents are not going to want you to be writing those essays. Maybe you're going to go away. I promise you, you will really enjoy this year a whole lot more if you just get the work done now. Uh, That's the public service announcement for the day. We are later in the show going to be answering your admissions and college finance questions. So if you have emailed questions to us, uh, and if you're curious, thinking, boy, I have questions, I'd like to email those in, you can do that at gettingin.voiceamerica.gmail.com. But if you've already sent them in, we're going to be answering them a little later in the show. But we are going to get started with something that we see happen from time to time. Uh, It can be a little bit of a holiday phenomenon and not a good one necessarily. Um, But what if you right now are currently a college freshman and maybe you're already thinking about transferring or you're the parent of a college freshman who comes home during the holidays and wants to transfer? Uh, Maybe, you know, I think we see it as, as soon sometimes as fall break. Um, definitely a common thing at Thanksgiving break and can also uh, creep up at Christmas break. Um, I am welcoming today to talk to me through these issues uh, my colleague who happens to be a former financial, uh, sorry, former admissions officer at Drexel and Swarthmore uh, and also the current parent of not one but two college students, uh, Ken and Dick. Hi, Kenan. Hi, how are you today? I'm good. And I am excited and interested in talking about this because, well, I would say that it doesn't necessarily happen every year, but it is not uncommon for post-Thanksgiving me to get an email or a phone call from either a parent, a former parent or a former student saying that uh, somebody wants to transfer. And my reaction Mm -hmm. is almost always, wow, it feels early to be thinking about that. Um, So I guess my first uh, question for you is when, if you're a student thinking this or you're a parent who is about to experience this, um, what is the first thing that you recommend doing? That's a really good question. Um, And so uh, just so the listeners have kind of a little bit of background, um, I have, uh, as Beth said, I have two uh, students who are in college. One's about to finish up uh, the semester, and I have a, a junior as well. And both of them transferred. So I'm um, <laughs> perfect for the segment. <laughs> it is perfect for and, the segment. <laughs> and so I can share some of those experiences with you know, some of the ones that, that I've had um, as a counselor as well. But typically what I find is that at this point in the year, especially when you have a freshman, there's a, there's a couple of things that are, that are usually going on. Um, and as a parent, what I think we first have to try to figure out is where, where is the sensation coming from? Where, you know, where is the, the feeling that they need to, to make a change, uh, coming from? What's the root of that? 
and it tends to come from a couple of different sources. Um, oftentimes, it's going to be social, and, uh, and that can have varying degrees. And the biggest difficulty that we have, I think, as parents is that to a certain extent, everybody is going through this adjustment period, right? The fall of the freshman year is the biggest change that these students are ever going to go through in terms of their lifetime. Um, they're on their own. They're adjusting to the academics, which are often two or three notches above what they experienced in high school in many cases. Um, they're exposed to all sorts of different, you know, ways of doing and being that they've never been exposed to, different religions, different geographic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, all that is kind of in that mix, and they're trying to figure all that out at once. And oftentimes, it's just not comfortable. Um, and part of it is that, you know, it's that growth process that we all go through um, as we're going through college. And it's our job to try to figure out if it's just part of that growth or if there's something more serious going on. Right. So and- um, I I think as, as a parent, you know, trying to, uh, to parse out the, the difference between that is a very difficult line to draw in our own minds. Uh, so it takes a, a fair amount of conversation to try to figure that out. Right. And so that's actually my next question, which is, how do you tell, right? How do you tell if we're just dealing with some run-of-the-mill adjustment to um, what for some kids might be the first new school situation that they've been in? in 17 or 18 years, because if you have lived in the same town, uh, your kids may have gone to an elementary school and then a middle school or junior high and then high school, but likely with the same group of students. So that can be very jarring to not be in those familiar environs uh, for the very first Mm -hmm. time. Um, But how do you tell if it's simply that or it's more serious stuff that really warrants we may have made a mistake here and it may be something that we need to uh, address. Um, so I know you have some experience with with uh, with those. So I would love to kind of mm-hmm. get some of your stories that you could share with us. Sure. So I think um, in the case of my oldest son, um, I think he just felt like he had made, in retrospect, he, he will say, I made the wrong choice. Um, right. That I didn't really appreciate. It had, like, on paper, um, his school had everything that he was looking for. And so it seemed like the perfect match. But he, he also wanted to get away from school. He did not want to be nearby. He wanted to, to go as far away as possible. As parents, we kind of put a limit on that. We said, you know, it has to be at least drivable. We're not getting on a plane necessarily. So he kind of pushed that to the maximum limits. And what I think he discovered was that, you know, in going that distance, that there was a significant subcultural change, right? And Mm -hmm. that, you know, being from kind of a, a northern state and going to a school in a southern state, there was just a difference that he wasn't prepared for. And for him, it just made him made it more difficult for him to connect, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as he opened his mouth, everybody knew that he wasn't from the South, right? Right, <laughs> so, right, you know, right. Easily identifiable that, you know, he wasn't um, a local kid. And so, um, and that in combination with, he never was one of those, he had a really tight group of friends to begin with and was never one of those people that was really good at reaching out and, and kind of making new acquaintances and getting to know people. That wasn't his strength. And so after the freshman year, it felt like things were getting better in the, in the spring semester. Um, he was a golfer. He was on the golf team. And so that kind of kicked in in the spring and things got better. 
Mm-hmm. And then when he returned to school for his sophomore year, things went south pretty much in a hurry. Uh, um, so I think that acclimation process really kind of came to a head in his sophomore year. And that's when we realized that, no, this isn't something that's part of the adjustment period. This is something that's more serious than that. And he mm-hmm. was just miserable. Um, and this is a kid that's, you know, kind of a tough it out kind of kid. And he was just that miserable. You could see it on his face when we Skyped on Sunday nights and you could just see that it was just draining him. And that's mm-hmm. when we kind of knew, okay, we've got to make a change here. Right. And but, I've also what's had situations where, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say what's interesting about that is that he did, um, sh- you know, that was a situation where you kind of had to keep an eye on it, where by all accounts, it looked like it had resolved itself. It was sort of that general uncomfortableness and mm-hmm. but it kind of settled, but then really came back with a vengeance. And and what's great about that is you were keeping an eye on it in an appropriate way by and and noticing these things and encouraging him to talk to you about them. Um, and yeah. I think that's probably the best part. So anyway, you have other stories to tell. I don't want to. Um, yeah, take up and your I time. Just think so that um, you know, from our perspective, I mean, he's he's kind of a, a very internal kid. So I think we, even though we were keeping an eye on it, we were, I think, a little bit late to that realization. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he was too. So that's why I think he transferred in his sophomore year or after his sophomore year, not after his freshman year. Um, but we also have other situations where sometimes kids just uh, change. Um, for my daughter, for instance, she thought she wanted to go into special education. She had some great experiences in high school working with the special, uh, special ed students. And you know, that's really what she wanted to do. And then um, after her freshman year, she decided that, you know, special ed and being in a classroom environment wasn't really what she wanted to do. She still really wanted to work with this population, but probably through occupational therapy or something along those lines. So her career path and her career interest changed, and that uh, necessitated a change in colleges because they didn't have the program and the certifications that she was looking for at College A, so she had to make the switch to College B. And then you have things like um, sometimes, you know, I had a, a student that I worked with in, uh, going into her freshman year, and uh, again, about this time of year, she said, I need to make a change. I've got to transfer. And then I started hearing all sorts of information that I didn't know previously that you know, the, she was following the boyfriend who was also going to the same school. She mm-hmm. was um, a field hockey player and uh, a really good one. And so they recruited her. The um, the team, the chemistry on the team just was not, it was kind of toxic, and she broke up with her boyfriend. So she was at a really small school where she's running into him all the time on campus, and it just had an ugly feel to it. The hockey team wasn't working out, so just everything was going south. So for her, she needed to make that change, and she felt like she had to do it spring semester of sophomore or of freshman year. So she needed to right. make that change quickly for herself. So, you know, sometimes students change and sometimes those situations change and uh, it can bring around different types of results. And I, I had an experience with a student where on the surface, she talked a really good game that made it sound like it was not adjustment, but really more about, um, opportunity, like your daughter who actually completely switched her major and then needed to go somewhere else to find the major she wanted. In this situation, the student, um, when she was trying to choose between schools, met an upperclassman who she just loved and they connected and it felt like 
her people were at this college and then she got to the college and not everyone, unsurprisingly, was exactly like that other student. So then it was the other extreme, which is that was the only student who was there who was like me. Nobody else is like me. And she had gone quite a distance away from home to go to college. So there was some culture shock, I, I believe. But the way that she presented it was, well, I really want to major in X, and there really isn't that much for me in that major. Well, when we dug into it together, we got on the website, we looked at the opportunities within the um, within the department and really kind of discovered that, well, actually, there was a lot of opportunity there um, that she wasn't necessarily taking advantage of some of the things she had mentioned she wanted to take advantage of that would have helped her meet other students with similar interests. And so when pushed, it really did turn out to be more uncomfortableness than that she actually needed to transfer. And ultimately, she never got back in touch with me after that conversation. And she is about to graduate from that college. So I think the takeaway for me in hearing your stories and in sharing this particular one of my own is that uh, you can't take everything Everything at face value that when with something that's as big a deal as transferring, uh, you need to dig more deeply. Sometimes you need to give it time. Sometimes you need to recognize Mm -hmm. right away, okay, this is not a good situation and let's immediately get out of it. Maybe even taking a leave of absence if it's a significantly negative situation. But whatever you do, it shouldn't be a flippant choice and that you you need to dig a little bit deeper. And, And I think that's an important thing for um, for families to think about. But let's move on because we have a lot to cover and not as much time uh, left to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, what you, in your, uh, I think we talked about some of the things you can do in terms of waiting. Um, are there some specific things you would suggest families do uh, if the choice is that, yes, they actually do need to transfer or this is something that they should think seriously about doing? What what I found in in my experiences, both with with my own kids as well as other uh, students, is that that experience that they had at school A brings around a lot of clarity as to what they're looking for in school B. And so, I think for them, it's it's being able to to go back to that search process and and make sure that whatever it is that was repelling them from school A, that that gets resolved in, in school B. But there's a number of things that kind of go along with that as well. Um, for students who are at highly selective schools, making a, a transfer to another uh, school of similar selectivity is going to be pretty difficult to do. So it depends mm-hmm. upon your, your options are going to depend upon where you are in that selectivity chart. So uh, keeping that in mind as well, you may have to make a choice that in terms of selectivity may not be as strong as, as the one that you're currently at. But Finding, um, finding the schools that then have the characteristics that you're looking for, I think is they're going to go into that with a lot more clarity. And the more points of contact um, that you can have with that future school, the more secure they're going to feel in, in making that uh, and knowing that that's the right choice for them. So just like um, the example of your student where they had really one point of contact and felt like this is a great school for me and then got there mm-hmm. and said, oh, they're not all like this. Right. The more students that you can talk to in that process, and I think they do this more as a transfer applicant than they do as a freshman, uh, the more points of contact that they can have, the better off that they're going to be. 
Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And um, I I think one special shout out I would make is, and we did last week, we did a whole segment on um, the UCs and the UC applications. But if you're currently enrolled in a four-year institution and thinking you're going to enroll in one of the UCs or transfer to them, um, that is super unlikely. Uh, I, I do think mm-hmm. the idea of trans of using a transfer to get to a better quote unquote better school than you're currently at is, you know, I, I think it's risky business and it's you have to be um, what is the word I'm looking for realistic because at many of the more selective schools uh, there are fewer spots for transfers than there are for um, entering freshmen and so. You really have to be focusing on doing, making some significant improvements to your application if you applied, for example, and didn't get in as an entering freshman. Um, simply spending a, a year, and really by the time you transfer only a semester at another institution, um, is unlikely to move the needle and suddenly turn you into a super competitive applicant at, at that other institution. And I really do encourage students to embrace the school where they're enrolled and maybe make, uh, cons- you know, consider going to that dream school. Maybe that's going to be an opportunity for grad school for you. But if you are constantly working towards transferring, you're not embracing where you are and you're probably not taking advantage of the opportunities that are available to you there. And in which case you may then not present a particularly strong application um, when it comes time to apply to transfer. But that's just my Second public service announcement for the day. Um, we and I talked- totally agree with that. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that in, in my experience, I've only had, I mean, almost all of the students are making a lateral move. Very few in the many years that I've been doing this have actually been able to, um, to go up in terms of selectivity. And mm-hmm. usually that, uh, quite honestly, they're usually an athlete. Right. So they're being recruited to another school. So that, you know, it's something certainly for people to keep in mind um, and to be realistic. Um, On September 6th, so in our free archives, which I mention in every show that I host, uh, I I mentioned that we have these great archives. But on September 6th, we did a segment on... um, helping students prepare for the adjustment to to college. So for those who are listening and thinking, boy, I hope this doesn't happen to us, um, there are some suggestions for trying to help students acclimate and be really comfortable when they get there. We've also done a number of different segments on putting together a college list and being thoughtful about that piece of it um, so that hopefully you are able to make a good choice to begin with. So you don't wind up having to transfer, but Kenan, when we were preparing for this segment, you and I talked about something that's super important. Um, and I, I would Mm -hmm. love if we could kind of wrap, wrap it up by hitting on the one area that, that you see, and I have as well contributing to that sort of more uncomfortableness feeling, um, the social sh- challenges rather than the actual, you know, oh gosh, I really need to transfer. Um, and that's social media. So maybe you could talk a little bit right. about that. Yeah. And this is something that kind of rears its ugly head in a lot of these situations is the feeling that, you know, if a student's struggling a little bit, um, they often will kind of look at their what their friends are doing and on social media, they're having a blast and they're going to all these parties and they're having a fun time and they have all these friends and everything looks great and rosy where they are. 
And so it just exacerbates that feeling that they that they feel somehow disconnected or that they've uh, they haven't made the right choice for themselves. And so um, I think that a lot of what um, is a part of this is that ability or uh, or inability rather to disconnect from high school friends and close friends back home um, and try to to make their current location work, right, and make that that college experience work for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so because they kind of still have a foot in both worlds, it makes it difficult for parents to kind of figure out. And that's why those conversations that we talked about earlier are so important, because you have to sift through what these where these emotions are coming from. And uh, we find that social media has a lot to do with it in so many of these cases. Right, right. Kenan, thank you so much for joining us today and providing your quite informed perspective, given um, what you have had uh, both at home and professionally. Uh, I really appreciate Mm -hmm. it. Sure, my pleasure. All right, up next, we are going to be answering your questions, so don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do you think about what you really want? Are you looking to change or perfect your environment, your value, your life? We can help. Tune in to Everyday News with the Blantons. Hosted by husband and wife team Mark and Dr. Latasha Blanton, our program will help you find the answers to make the changes in your life with inspiring guests that can help you find your sense of place in the world and how you view it. Listen live every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are doing one of my favorite segments that we do on the show, and that is we are answering your questions And you guys have a lot of them, and I appreciate it. Some of you submit them to us on Facebook, which is great. If you're not following us on Facebook, you should. There's all kinds of great information. We do videos. 
we publish articles that are of we think of interest. Um, we publish our, our blogs there. Uh, you can also submit them to us via gettingin.voiceamerica@gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica@gmail.com. And I think that we also get questions from time to time via Twitter. So Shannon Vasconcelos, who's a former financial aid officer at Boston University and Tufts University, is joining me today, my frequent guest when we do these listener Q&As. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And I think I mentioned Twitter because I think that the very first question we're tackling today came to us via Twitter. Yes, it sure did. And yeah, you can follow us on Twitter too, at CollegeCoachBH is our handle. So feel free to, to follow us there and, and submit any questions and we'll try and get them answered for you. But yeah, the first question comes to us from Twitter handle Western PA Women, um, who asked us, if your child's school offers AP classes freshman year, does she need to take it to take the most, this is in quote, most rigorous mm-hmm. curriculum possible. She can mm-hmm. still take honors in the major subjects that aren't AP. I hate the idea that she has to start AP so early. Sure. So this is actually fairly uncommon that you would see APs offered um, in freshman year. Uh, I can think of a couple of situations where you do see it, sometimes AP human geography, sometimes AP world history. Um, I would say this, for starters, the idea of the most rigorous curriculum available is generally taking, um, going to the highest level possible in all five major subjects. And usually that does entail um, taking some more advanced courses along the way. So for example, at a school where they offer honors and then they have APs, it might be that you're doing honors level coursework in some or all of the classes. And then by the time you get to be a senior, you've gone to the AP level in all those five major subjects, math, science, English, history, and foreign language. Um, But each school is going to differ in terms of what's available at the school. Um, So there is no standard sort of, this is the most rigorous curriculum, because then other schools have an international baccalaureate curriculum. Some schools offer no APs at all, um, or IB program, and they define most rigorous in their own way. So it's very difficult to make a blanket statement. What I would say is that In the schools where APs are offered to freshmen, like I said, it's usually a select couple of classes. And if your student is qualified or recommended to take it, uh, you know, uh, if, if they feel excited about it and up to it, great. If they're not, then that could be fine too. I, I, I guess I'm the, the whole, I hate the idea that she has to start AP so early. I guess for me, I'm not sure that I, I am, I think it's this idea that AP is what you do in junior or senior year, but if a school is routinely kind of offered this particular class to freshmen, it's likely because they feel like freshmen are, uh, you know, able to handle it. So again, I would go yeah. with if they're recommended for it, but if you philosophically feel like you don't want your student to be doing that AP, it, at the, first of all, the, the only schools that are looking for the most rigorous available are really the most selective schools in the country. And that is such a very tiny percentage of the colleges that are out there. I mean, really, we're talking about Ivies and Ivy Plus, like Stanford, MIT, Caltech. And even then, um, they don't necessarily expect to see students doing um, 
every AP available. It isn't about collecting APs. It's about following a course of study that is both challenging um, but makes sense. Uh, and, you know, so I, what do I mean when I say it makes sense? I guess um, I would say that if you have a student who just is ultimately going to be shooting for one of these most selective schools, it means that they're doing the same foreign language all the way through to the end and not kind of hopping around. It means that if they have achieved, you know, they've maxed out on the math curriculum at the school, they are maybe doubling up in another area um, and or they're going outside of the school for additional math study rather than just Mm -hmm. saying, well, let me add these two more APs because the more APs I have, the better, right? It's really about following the things that you are really good at and most interested in, but for the most selective schools, you need to be doing well across those five subject areas. So as with everything, it is not an easy or short answer, but that that is, right. you know, the, the long and short of it is maybe it is appropriate for your daughter to take that class, but I wouldn't say that she absolutely has to have it. Um, one last thing I will throw out there, sorry, is that um, if if all of the top students in her class, her freshman class, take those AP classes, yep. then yes, actually, it could come back to be um, to haunt her a little bit. If you know a lot of those students are going to be applying to the same colleges she is applying to, then um, right. they could be looking at the curriculum and saying, "Well, hers is not quite as rigorous as these others." Not because she didn't do one class that everyone else did, but more usually because over the course of her time in the high school, she was routinely not doing a curriculum that was quite as rigorous as the other kids. And again, that's fine. You know, you need to make the choice that's right for you and your child, and you need to be true to your own philosophy and feelings about this. But there are going to be potential drawbacks to that, and it's just good to be aware of it. Right. And it never comes down to just one thing is what exactly. I've picked up from you over the course of these segments. That is exactly right. It is never going to be about one thing. All right. Yeah. I have a question for you. This comes to us from Emmanuel, who submitted this via Facebook. And the question is how to get a fee waiver for the SAT. Right. So, Emmanuel, what you need to do is talk to your high school guidance counselor. They are sent um, fee waiver codes from the college board, the folks that run the SAT, um, actually same kind of thing if you're taking the ACT, there are fee waivers for that as well. But you talk to your high school guidance counselor and what you need to be able to document for them is that you, you meet one of the, there's an, a handful of qualifications where they will grant you a fee waiver. Um, basically, your family income has to be below a certain threshold or you need to be qualified to receive free or reduced lunch at your school, live in subsidized housing, um, things like that. Um, But yeah, just talk to your high school guidance counselor and they can give you a code that you can plug in when you take, when you register for the SATs and they will not charge you the fee. Nice. All right. Good information. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. So I have actually another question for you, Beth, about AP courses, very popular subject. Um, This was submitted by Johanna on Facebook. How do very selective colleges value different AP courses? Are some more valuable or advantageous to take than others? Some have a reputation for being easier or harder than others. How much does this factor into an assessment of a student? For example, 
biology or chem versus environmental science or U.S. history versus human geography? Okay, well, I'm going to start with my very standard, it depends, um, because <laughs> while certain college, certain AP courses might have a reputation or you might have heard, and we always have to be careful about the whole, like, I've heard that, right? If you listen to the show, you know yep. when something starts with I've heard that, what follows is usually at best, not 100% the truth, and at worst, completely false. Um, I would say in this situation, it's probably not 100% the truth, but not necessarily completely false. So um, at at a given school, it could be that um, AP Environmental Science is literally the hardest class that is taught at the school, because maybe there is a local... Um, and environmental science expert who is passionate about the subject and has created an insanely difficult course and students struggle Mm -hmm. to do well in it, in which case um, that could really represent one of the, to do well in that class might represent one of the best achievements in that school. Usually if that's the case on a sort of uh, surprising course is one of the most difficult courses. Often the college counselor will acknowledge that or make note of it in the letter um, that they, that they write for the student. Um, But I would say it's less about colleges liking certain APs and more about there are certain APs that you kind of expect to see at the most selective level. Again, we are talking about this very tiny little group of schools, right? So I rarely saw a student who didn't take AP U.S. history by the time they graduated, and usually in junior year. Uh, If they didn't have it at the school, then no big deal. We didn't expect to see it. But for students who are going to a school where AP U.S. history was offered, I generally expected to see that in junior year, and it was rare if they didn't take it. Um, Similarly, uh, we expected typically to see students take AP Um, calculus by the time they graduated. That was generally pretty common, and it was not really looked upon super favorably if instead of AP calculus, the student opted for AP stats. And while you can go to visit these schools and they can answer this question differently in their information sessions, (laughs) I will tell you that after years and years of doing this, uh, I think students need to be in calculus and, and not in stats. And maybe they could take stats by the time they graduate. It's not that it's not a good course, but it is. there is definitely an, um, uh, a feeling that the AP calculus course is typically harder. And so while stats might be more relevant to what you ultimately want to study, um, I would not forego calculus in order to take stats. You might do both by the time you graduate. And then the last thing I would say is that for something like science, um, where you really were hoping to see all three of the major core sciences, biology, chemistry, and physics, um, it often followed that that would be, if you were trying to go to the highest level available, and the school offered APs in biochemistry, physics, and then also, say, environmental science, you would definitely want to see biochem or or physics, and then maybe if they also did environmental science, not as big of a deal, but the other three were sort of viewed as the cores. So again, I think to to sum it all up, what I would say is that it is less about some being seen as not being as difficult and more about there were some that you really did anticipate seeing if they were offered at the school. And if those were missing and there were other APs in their place, you might not be as 
as wowed. Um, so, so right. you know, AP psychology versus AP US history, for example. Gotcha. Uh, okay. We have time for one, maybe two more before we go to break. But the next question for you is, uh, comes to us from Kelly, submitted on Facebook. Uh, and the question is pretty <laughs> short. And I hopefully it means right. something to you. Scholarships, stacked or blended? <laughs> Yes, yeah, short, short and sweet from Kelly. Uh, <laughs> that's what we tend to get on, on Facebook. Um, and, I, and I actually wish I had some more information from Kelly about exactly what she's referring to there, but I, I can kind of make a guess at it um, that Kelly is asking about um, when you receive scholarships from a school and then maybe get another scholarship from maybe an outside organization or maybe actually from the school in another way, are they added on top of each other or does one scholarship kind of replace another? Um, and unfortunately, there's not a real quick, easy answer to that one because it does really depend on the specific school and the specific scholarship. So you'd want to check in with that college uh, directly. I will say typically if you are receiving a merit scholarship from a college and then you pull in like a $1,000 scholarship from, um, you know, an organization in your town or from some outside organization, usually they will just add it right on top. So they will stack the, the scholarships. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what scholarship stacking refers to. Um, if you are receiving need-based financial aid, um, they may or may not be able to stack the scholarships. Basically, you are only allowed to receive total aid equaling your need at a school if, if need-based aid is in play at all, if you're receiving any need-based aid. And if your need is already being met and then you receive a scholarship from an, an outside organization, um, they will not be able to stack it right on top because they are saying if you've got, for example, a $1,000 scholarship from an outside organization, that's $1,000 you no longer need, so they could mm-hmm. reduce your need-based financial aid. So they can stack up to your financial need if need-based aid is in play, but beyond that, they do have to replace um, some funding. And normally, they'll replace work-study or loans first before they touch any, any scholarship or grant money. Um, there are some circumstances where uh, I'm thinking specifically of there's sort of a new platform out there called raise.me where students earn scholarship funding at various schools that participate in this website. Um, and it's become a very popular question for us um, if that's the raise.me scholarship money that they are getting is going to affect other scholarships that they might get from the school. And we have found it really, really depends on the school. At some schools, you do get the kind of the guaranteed raise.me money on top of any other merit scholarships you might have been awarded from the school. At other schools, the raise dot, their raise.me participation is really just kind of a marketing tool and the money you get through raise.me is just going to replace other money that you would have already received from the school. So unfortunately, not a quick and easy answer. It really does depend on the school. So if you have a question about scholarship funding you're getting from a particular school, it's best to ask them directly and they can let you know what their policies are. All right. Awesome. Well, on that note, we're going to go to a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to get to more of your questions. So don't go away.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests are people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back, and we are going to get right back to your questions because you have a lot of them. So, Shannon, you have one for me. What do you got? I sure do. And this is from David. He's asking about filling out the activity section on the Common Application and the time commitment to report on the Common App. So he asks, when a student's role in an activity has changed over the years from ninth to 12th grade, and the number of hours has evolved over time and varies throughout different parts of the school year, how much averaging and approximation is legitimate? Should the entry reflect the level of engagement of the final editor-in-chief position, for example, or should it be averages across the four years? This is a really great question, actually, and I can't remember ever receiving it, but I will tell you that when I'm working with students on completing this section of the Common App, um, what we generally do is focus on the level of engagement now if the student is still involved. So in this example, um, your student is currently editor-in-chief of uh, the yearbook. I would be doing the time average per week um, and then weeks per year that this requires currently of the student. And um, I would also say, though, that when you're thinking about in more general terms, how do you average this? What do you do if, you know, something takes a certain amount of hours at certain times of the year and then fewer hours or more hours? 
is at other times of the year. What I generally do is I ask a student to kind of be thoughtful around, okay, well, how? let's think, let's start with how many weeks out of the year you actually are doing this. Sometimes students just do a default like, oh, well, this is all school year. And then they put 40 weeks or I often suggest 36 weeks as the general when you factor in vacations and everything. But then when we really dig into it, it's really more like half of that time. So maybe it's really more like 18 weeks because, well, it doesn't start until this month and then we take a break for this month and then we get back to it in this month. So first, it's about really being thoughtful around how many weeks out of the year is this actually taking place and then being thoughtful about, well, half of that time. So nine weeks of the year, it's only an hour of my time. But then the other nine weeks of the year, it is as many as, say, like 15 hours of time. And so, you know, in that scenario, it is it is definitely tricky. So what I will sometimes do is have students do um, an average, but then put in the description section that it's sort of like nine weeks, it's one hour a week, but during, let's say, the play, for example, it is more like 15 hours a week. The the Common App doesn't allow you to provide a range, but you can, you know, sort of add additional color in that room that you have for the description. And that would be a great example when you have an activity that fluctuates really wildly where you could use some of that space to help the admissions officer get a fuller picture. What you really also, um, one thing too is to, you never want to underestimate, but you also have to be really careful about overestimating. So I've had situations where when I look at what the student has put down, um, they've overestimated in every area, right? The amount of weeks they're doing it per year, they're overestimating Mm -hmm. in the number of hours per week. And so what winds up happening is if we total up everything, they could be spending 40 plus hours a week on extracurriculars or possibly more than that, 50, 60. And now we start getting into, okay, so when are you actually sleeping? Because you're spending (laughs) all of these hours at school. We know you have homework and now you're doing this. Is this really accurate? And when I push them in that way, they usually are able to go, okay, well, right. I kind of probably overestimated here and we can pull back in different areas. Um, So you want to take an overall look at things before you feel like this section is really complete and make sure that if an admissions officer does that math, they're not sort of going, well, Mm -hmm. wait a second, that sounds a little much. The last piece of advice I would have here, especially for those of you who are listening who have not yet um, filled out applications because you're not a senior, um, the more you can do to keep a running tab of what you're doing and how much time it takes. My son is a freshman. He is currently playing football. Um, When the season is over, he and I are going to sit and we are going to put in um, the amount of time. We're going to be thoughtful about, okay, so how much time did you spend in practice? And then when you had games, how much time did that add? And we are going to know at the end of this season exactly what those averages look like. And then we're not going to have to come up with them when he's a senior and we're trying to remember. Um, But really great question around what you focus on. And I would say it's what the student is doing now if it's an activity that's still going on. All right. Gotcha. Shannon, uh, Lisa sends us a question through uh, our email and that is what does home, how does home equity affect financial aid? I've heard that different schools 
oh, I hate that phrase, but <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I've heard that different schools have different formulas to calculate contribution based on contributions based on home equity. Yeah. So, yeah, I hate, tend to hate that I've heard phrase too, but at least it's actually right in this case. So home equity can affect financially differently at different schools. I will tell you at the vast, vast majority of schools, and I'm talking like 3,700-ish schools out of the approximately 4,000 schools in the country, home equity does not affect financial aid at all. It is invisible for financial aid purposes. That's at schools that just use the FAFSA. The FAFSA actually instructs you to exclude your home equity um, when you list your assets. Um, So it's absolutely invisible for financial aid purposes. does not matter how much home equity you have at the vast majority of schools. Now, there are about 300 almost entirely private colleges that use an extra form called the CSS Profile to calculate aid eligibility. And those schools that use the profile do look at your home equity when um, calculating financial aid eligibility. Um, But it is correct that schools can have different policies at how they look at the home equity. Um, Many schools will consider it at 100%, meaning if you have $100,000 in equity in your home, um, and that could be, you know, your home is worth 300000 but you have a 200000 mortgage, so you've got 100000 in equity in your house. Um, that's looked at exactly the same as $100,000 you have in the bank, and the colleges are going to expect you to contribute uh, a chunk of that home equity to college each year. Now, how you actually came, come up with the money is, is your choice, um, but they are going to assess um, a contribution from your home equity. So some colleges will look at it just like money in the bank. Um, there are some colleges, however, that will put a cap on the amount of home equity that they will look at um, based upon your income. And this is based on the theory that, you know, even if you have uh, you know, a million dollars in equity in your house, if your income is only, say, $50,000, no bank is going to give you a home equity loan for the whole million dollars mm-hmm. in equity that you have. You can't actually access that equity. So some colleges will put a cap on the amount of equity they'll use. Common numbers are like 1.2 times your income or two times your income. So in that scenario, if you had a million dollars in equity in your house, but your income was only $50,000 and a school capped equity at two times income, they would consider that you had $100,000 in home equity, like 100000 available assets in that scenario. So it does, it does depend on the college, um, but at the vast majority of colleges, home equity totally invisible does not enter the calculations at all. All right. Awesome and to I, know. Yeah. And I have a question for you, Beth, from Susan. Uh, and she says, I hear admissions counselors talking about advocating for kids all the time and what great kids they are. Are they getting to know the student purely from their application or is it from other contact? My kids are reluctant to bother admissions officers just to get to know them. They go to a huge school, and there's a long line whenever a counselor comes to the school. They think they will annoy the officer if they don't have a real question, but I don't want them to be at a disadvantage because the counselor only knows them from their application. 
So this is a good question. I would say that um, in general, when admissions officers are advocating for students, they are doing so based on the application. So it's everything that's in that application is what you are using to decide if you feel like this is a student you are going to be supporting in getting in and however your school does that. So at Penn, we had committee. And um, if I was advocating for students in committee, it meant that I had the students whose applications really stood out to me and I was going to go into committee and and advocate for them to be admitted. Um, And that committee system is is used at some schools, not at others. Others um, at other schools, it might be in your written notes and in, in how you, you know, advocating for a student could mean that you are marking them admit, and then the second reader is going to either confirm or not support your decision. So it's really based on how they do it at the different schools. <clears throat> there are certainly cases where you might get to know a, a student. I would say the more selective you get, the less that happens. Um, when I was an admissions officer at Penn. I would do evening programs in the fall, and I can remember, um, you know, over the course of my career, there are probably thousands of students waiting in line to simply say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and and shake my hand, and really have nothing more to say than that, um, in the hopes that I might somehow remember them when it came time. And that was really just, honestly, a little bit of wasted time on their part. Um, I can think, uh, conversely, about students that I did actually get to know, uh, where it impacted my advocating for them committee in committee. And I honestly feel like I could say that that happened with maybe three students. So thousands stood in line, three, and they didn't, they, that wasn't through meeting them at any evening event. It was generally because of Maybe I met them at a school um, visit, or maybe uh, I met them when they came to campus because they they sought me out and I happened to be on campus that day. Um, in all of those cases, it was because they had that sort of engaging personality and they had some good questions for me, and there was a reason for our conversation. So there are definitely, Penn is an extreme example. Um, I would say that there are certainly schools where if you have an opportunity to make a connection with your admissions officer, that's not a bad thing. But um, I think your kids are right in assuming that simply standing in line and waiting to shake someone's hand or just say, hi, I'm so-and-so, is not the best way to make that connection unless they have something real to discuss with that person. So if you're hoping to help them make those connections, I would say you want to help them think through what is a real question they could ask that isn't something they could find on the website. Um, And also be brutally honest. Is this a kid who can really engage with that person and and get into an interesting conversation with them? Um, If your child tends to kind of stare at the floor when asked a question or or when asked to interact with an adult, they're better off letting the application speak for them. And and, um, I in general, my my final word on this um, and I have to wrap it up because we're almost done with the show is just that Mm -hmm. I would say. Um, you know, that in general, it's the application that is going to do the speaking for your child. And and the best place to really put the most effort in is in that application. And that if they do a great job there, that will be to their advantage rather than um, spending a lot of time trying to make a personal connection, which which is unlikely to to maybe turn into too much. 
Um, Shannon, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. All right. I also want to thank Kenan. Next week, Sally is hosting. We're talking about math and science majors versus engineering majors. Um, We're going to be talking through the supplemental essays for Loyola Marymount and Occidental in California. Uh, And and for college finance, we're talking about repaying student loans. It's actually going to be part one of two segments on repaying student loans. Um, Visit our archives, visit our blog, and don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.